Hi everybody, welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. It's James Rudd here, the digital media editor at Heart. Today I'm talking to Dr. Chris Wilkinson all about frailty assessment in the management of cardiovascular disease. I hope you enjoy the show and please feel free to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us reach new listeners. Enjoy the show. Thank you very much for joining us on the Heart Podcast today, and I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Chris Wilkinson, who's going to talk to us about an Education in Heart paper that he's recently published with Kenneth Rockwood. And the paper's called Frailty Assessment in the Management of Cardiovascular Disease. And um, Chris, first of all, can I have you introduce yourself for the Heart audience? Um, who are you? Where do you work? And what do you do there? Hi. Well, thanks very much for having me on. It's, uh, it's a real privilege. So I am a senior lecturer in cardiology at Hull York Medical School and a consultant at James Cook University Hospital. And I really wanted to talk to you about your paper, which describes, um, as I say, frailty assessment in the management of cardiovascular disease, because I think this is really an area that is um, less well known than other specialties. For example, in stroke, the assessment of frailty is really important. And I think it's a really timely piece that you've written with Dr. Rockwood. Maybe we can start off by exploring the reasons that sort of prompted you to write the paper. Why is the issue of frailty important in uh, cardiac patients? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I think it's incredibly common. Up to 24% of older adults uh, in the UK are living with frailty, and it's particularly common in people with cardiovascular disease. Um, and I think really alongside population aging, we're likely to be seeing increasing numbers of people with frailty in our cardiovascular practices. I mean, in, in nine years time, 22% of the UK population will be aged 65 years or older. So I think as cardiologists, we're going to be becoming increasingly encountering people with complexity, lots of comorbidity, and trying to manage multiple conditions all at the same time. And that's not the care systems have been built over time. It's not the way that we collect our evidence base or the way that guidelines are written. They tend to be very single organ and actually single condition focused. So when you're starting to look after people with nine or 10 or 11 concomitant uh, illnesses, um, then uh, frailty gives a really useful way of kind of conceptualizing that really and dealing with and describing uh, that complexity in a common language. So I think uh, frailty is going to be a really useful concept in terms of treating our patients uh, holistically. And maybe before we go on, we should actually jump in to describe um, what we mean medically by by frailty. How, how would you define it, Chris? Well, there's a kind of um, a kind of technical definition, which is a state of vulnerability to an adverse outcome after a stressor event that relates to cumulative decline over a number of physiological systems. But the way I think about it really is that we all know that our chances of dying increase with every passing year. Um, but people of the same age have very dramatically different risks of death. Uh, so it's kind of capturing the difference between chronological age and biological age. Um, and the example that kind of springs into my head really is David Attenborough, who's sort of jumping onto submarines and adventuring around the world in his 80s and 90s. Um, versus someone that might be 45 and living with multiple long-term health conditions um, who is extremely frail and is much more functionally limited uh, than David Attenborough, who might be double their age. I think that's why frailty is so interesting um, and such an important concept, really. And 
how do we go about measuring frailty? And maybe you could talk us through the different ways of doing that for, for inpatients and outpatients, for example. Yeah, well, the gold standard for identifying frailty is a comprehensive geriatric assessment, which can then be summarised um, summarized traditionally by a geriatrician using something like the clinical frailty scale. But that tends to be a very involved process that takes place over you know, a relatively prolonged period of time by someone with expertise in geriatrics. And there's kind of been recent developments in the UK that have given us kind of screening shortcuts, really, as, as ways of identifying people that are at high risk of frailty. So in the UK, we've got the Electronic Frailty Index, um, which is populated using general practice records. And 36 deficits are defined, and they can be health conditions or comorbidities, um, lab result abnormalities, that kind of thing. And of the 36 possible, uh, then a patient is given a, a score based on how many abnormalities they have, which is then converted into uh, mild, moderate or severe frailty. And that's really useful because um, those correspond with uh, a whole range of outcomes, importantly, mortality. So people that are in the fit group, their one year mortality is just under 2%. In the mild group, it's just under 5%. In the moderate group, one year mortality is coming up for 11%. And in people with severe frailty have got a 19% one year mortality. So it's, I think that's really useful information to know when you're treating your patients to think, well, okay, they're coming with a heart attack now, but their chances of um, survival are already dramatically reduced by being you know severely frail before they're admitted um, and I suppose the important thing about frailty is that it should really be assessed a couple of weeks before the person became unwell so it's almost casting your mind back to what they were like before because clearly when someone arrives and they're sort of in a heap with uh, sepsis or uh, heart failure then that's not the best time to be assessing what their baseline level of function is um, so sometimes it will involve taking a bit of a collateral history about what someone was like a couple of weeks prior but it's not just about mortality. You know, frailty predicts uh, nursing home admission, um, cognitive decline, admissions to hospital, as well as mortality. So there's all these outcomes that are really important to patients that can be captured and summarised by uh, reporting their frailty status. And as far as cardiology goes and cardiovascular uh, conditions, like things like valve disease, heart failure, acute coronary syndromes, can you give us, or is there any data out there? And I imagine there's not perhaps as much as there is in other specialties as to how um, prevalent frailty is, particularly in the different categories you've talked about, you know, for example, severely frail. Um, how prevalent is that amongst patients with cardiovascular disease? It's, it's strikingly common, but um, the amount of robust data that we have on the exact prevalence is a bit limited um, and also the impact of frailty on outcomes. And um, I mean, what, what we can say is that amongst people with atrial fibrillation, uh, about nine out of 10 people age 65 or over with atrial fibrillation have frailty as well to some degree, whether that's mild, moderate or severe. Um, and that nine is out of 10. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so it is very common and, and people with frailty and atrial fibrillation are at increased risk of mortality, falls, gastrointestinal bleeding. Um, all of these things are clearly very important for patients that you're thinking about anticoagulating. Um, in terms of what you can do about that to to alter their treatment, it's, it's a bit more limited. I mean, it, it did some work on a post-hoc analysis of adoxaban and found that actually the efficacy of adoxaban was similar across the frailty spectrum, really, compared to warfarin. But we lacked robust data really on bleeding because the number of events was too small and these people aren't well represented in clinical trials. Um, 
clearly the more frail that people are when they go in to have procedures and things like that, the worse their outcome is likely to be. At the more extreme end, there's a, a, there's a TAVI registry that showed that uh, one year mortality for people that underwent a TAVI, if they also had severe frailty, was 44%. Um, which again is quite striking. And these are the kind of numbers that we need to know as cardiologists when we're deciding whether to recommend um, an intervention to someone or not. And this is information clearly that patients would want to know when they're trying to make informed decisions. Uh, But in a lot of areas of cardiology, it's a little bit lacking. Even in something as common as um, acute coronary syndromes, people that undergo an invasive strategy for ACS um, if they have frailty, they obviously increased risk of mortality, but also recurrent myocardial infarction, unplanned repeat revascularization, and a whole range of other adverse outcomes. And that's just the people that we know about that come to the attention of cardiologists and are referred for an invasive strategy. So that's, you know, that's going to be the fitter end of the cohort. Um, amongst people with heart failure, um, as many as 63% of people with heart failure and a reduced ejection fraction are also living with frailty. And that's associated with increased mortality and hospitalisation. Um, so I think the burden of frailty amongst patients that we're seeing already is high and it's likely to increase as time goes on. And you talk in your paper about the concept, particularly before cardiac surgery, of uh, prehabilitation and trying to get people fitter, to, I guess, to reduce frailty and give them an improved outcome. I mean, it seems like a really good idea. I mean, are there any other strategies that we can do to kind of reverse or slow down frailty? What about things like cardiac rehabilitation? Maybe you could talk a little bit about if there's anything we can do to, to positively uh, change the course of, of frailty. Yeah, so there's clearly things that we can do early in the life course to slow the progression of frailty. And that's probably where our main kind of public health focus should be. It's making sure that, um, you know, people are taking part in regular exercise and uh, have their blood pressure well controlled and stop smoking and all the all the kind of really basic things that we should be doing in terms of primary prevention of disease. Um, And that will slow the progression of frailty and mean that people live longer, healthier lives, of course. And once someone already has a degree of frailty, actually identifying that with people might kind of help spur some of those conversations and help, I suppose, more robustly evidence the need for change. You know, if you say to someone, look, you are um, you are actually accruing um, biological aging at a rate that's above your chronological years um, and stopping smoking would help you a lot, um, then that might be, you know, an additional incentive to change. In terms of rehabilitation and prehabilitation, I think they're really interesting kind of emerging areas where um, essentially helping people to build resilience so that when they go in to have an operation, then they are stronger and more robust and more likely to have a good outcome and less likely to succumb to complications if they do arise. Because, you know, in the very definition of frailty, you're losing the ability to bounce back in a way after you've had a stressor event. Um, so if people are going into their operations that bit stronger with uh, better lung function and more physiological reserve, then they're more likely to do well. Um, and then keeping that up with rehabilitation, you know, regaining their strength after they've had a spell in hospital. Those are all good things that uh, that can um, that can help. And there's, there's some evidence that they might kind of reverse frailty to some extent. Um, but there are other examples in cardiology. I mean, um, people that have a left ventricular assist device or a heart transplant, that there's evidence that there's a reversal of frailty there. Um, that's quite an extreme example, but it shows that it's a dynamic phenomenon um, that on the whole, people will accrue health deficits over time. Um, so basically anything that you can do to slow down that rate of um, deficit uh, accumulation 
um, is is going to be a good thing in the long term. And you talk about um, estimating frailty and and why it's important uh, in the paper. And there's some lovely figures that explain uh, and expand upon what we've already discussed. But is there any, um, as far as you're aware, anything in guidelines? For example, we mentioned TAVI. Um, but there are other guidelines that we all try and follow that suggest that a sort of frailty estimate is, is helpful rather than just going off, you know, uh, gender and biological age. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, kind of historically, it sort of feels like in cardiology, we've almost used frailty as a reason to not do things. Right. Um, you know, you see someone who say, oh, I was going to start an ACE inhibitor, but they're a bit frail. Um, and firstly, we've not really defined as a community what we've meant by frailty. And I think that um, that being a bit more scientific now, some sort of more universal way of recognising what we're actually talking about so that we're sharing a common language of what that actually means, kind of means that we can then construct an evidence base around it um, and be a bit more critical about what it is that we mean when we're saying they're too frail for this treatment versus that treatment. Um, a lot of the guidelines haven't really kept up with that in a way. Um, there, are, there are references to frailty, like consider frailty, but it doesn't really, you know, for most of cardiology, it doesn't really particularly tell you um, what to do about it. And to some extent, that reflects uncertainties in the existing evidence base. Mm. You know, like we lack data on a lot of these areas to make robust decisions. Um, so at this stage, I think it's it's more useful for clinicians in terms of estimating prognosis. Um, communicating with patients uh, and tr- kind of having more informed decision making, uh, treating it as a more of a way of promoting a holistic way of looking after an individual rather than something that we've got an awful lot of hard data around, although that is emerging over time. Um, it's interesting that during COVID, um, things like the clinical frailty scale were used um, at the front door of hospitals as, as part of a way of establishing ceilings of care and what treatment would be offered and what treatment shouldn't be offered. Um, So I think particularly in general medicine, people have become increasingly familiar with frailty at the front door and making an assessment and using it to guide practice. Um, And in cardiology, um, I think we kind of, the evidence base, as I say, is is emerging about exactly what we do about frailty and how it should impact the treatment that we give and whether it should. Absolutely. It sounds like we've got some some catching up to do, doesn't it, with our general medical internal medicine colleagues as you say and particularly medicine for the elderly who've been um, talking about frailty for many years Um, is there anything else you'd like to share Chris in terms of what you're doing in your own research or resources that you could recommend um, listeners and readers could seek out if they want to learn more about frailty and maybe how it affects um, other areas of, of medicine, not just cardiology? I think in terms of other resources, I've been really lucky to work with um, Ken Rockwood on this paper, and he's really the international leader on, on frailty. He established the clinical frailty scale and the frailty index. Um, and he and Andy Clegg from Bradford uh, have written a fantastic paper in The Lancet about frailty in older people uh, that goes into a lot more detail. Um, and there's also some interesting things on, on YouTube that Ken Rockwood has re- recorded that just give very brief sort of summaries of, of how he uses frailty in his day-to-day practice as a geriatrician. As I mentioned, I think there's a definite need for more research about what you actually do about frailty because it's all very well kind of identifying it and using it as a tool to communicate uncertainties in a way. Um, but I think that as evidence emerges from trials such as Seniorita and, and others um, about exactly what the impact of frailty is based on different treatment strategies, 
um, then it's it's going to be more useful for prognostication than it is for guiding therapy. Uh, so I think that's the next stage of the journey, really, is building a robust evidence base um, and also engaging more widely with the kind of public health type messaging um, about risk factor reduction. Obviously, as cardiologists, we're at the end of the spectrum where disease is already manifest. Yeah. Um, but there's so much we can do before that point that's going to help with um, frailty, cardiovascular disease and um, people living happier, healthier lives. Which is uh, definitely the aim of all this, isn't it? Of course. Um, well, uh, thanks so much, Chris. It's been brilliant to to chat to you about your paper. If it's not already open access, I'll certainly make it open access for a few weeks after the podcast comes out so everybody can uh, read it freely. And uh, thanks once again for your time today. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you.